Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. And my guest today is Talia Isaacs. She's a double lung transplant recipient. And our topic is the will to live. And this program is going to be dedicated to, uh, who would you like to dedicate it to, Talia? All my doctors, nurses, and family. Okay, good. Pesach is our, our festival of freedom from slavery. It's now over, and I'm very excited to actually introduce Talia Isaacs as my guest today. Um, she has experienced her own freedom from bondage, the blessing of life, the ability to be able to breathe. Um, there's something that we so often take for granted. I actually heard Talia talking at the beginning of this month, and I was so inspired by what she had to say that uh, the next day I sent her a message to say, would she join me on Chai FM, and she agreed. So, Talia, welcome. Thank you very much. It's really good to have you. If anyone would like to WhatsApp us, uh, you can on 061-895-1019, or you can SMS us on 3451. Now I am sitting opposite a very beautiful young woman And to think that she has actually fought for her life as she has Is amazing to actually believe just looking at you Talia So would you please start like at the beginning How long have you had your your new lungs for? So I've had my lungs for just over a year It's actually just about here to a year and a half which is quite mad it feels like yesterday um and it's been very exciting year that i've experienced just breathing even normal day-to-day activities are miraculous for me mm, that's amazing just going back to your childhood did anything ever prepare you for an event like this in your life So I wouldn't say anything can prepare you for things like this. I think when things like this happen, you you develop a super strength and the will to survive. And I don't think any specific incidents can ever prepare you for something like this. Mm-hmm. Nothing as a child. I was brought up in a very strong, loving, warm home, family, and... There was no real incidents that would have ever prepared me for this. So what actually happened? You didn't have a, a, a chronic illness, a lung disease or anything? Um, I was perfectly healthy. Um, I was 29 years old. I suddenly fell ill with unknown what was going on with me. Um, we basically went to every single doctor, couldn't find out what was going on. I had blisters in my mouth, I was fatigued, I was I was ill. And how old were you at the time? 29 years old. And eventually I got to a point where I was rushed to hospital because I couldn't move, I couldn't eat, and I obviously couldn't go on like this. Um, thank God I was rushed to hospital because at that point my lungs pretty much collapsed. Mm. 
and I was ventilated. And for about a week, we still didn't know what was going on. I was in a critical condition. And um, eventually to discover that I had an autoimmune disease, um, it's my senior gravis. And that's how the whole journey began. Um, I healed from my senior. I was told I'd leave it, lead a normal life, which I did. For how long? For about six months, I was absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. Until suddenly my breath became weaker. I struggled to walk up hills. I just started feeling ill. I started feeling fatigue. And it was quite a quick progression from starting to feel like I couldn't breathe to the point that I genuinely couldn't breathe. Mm. And again, went to doctors, assumptions that it would be, that it was possibly an asthma or we checked my lungs to see if there were clots from previous surgeries or anything like that. And Did they ever say it was psychosomatic or? Yes, I was told that I was psychotic oh, and that gosh. potentially I was bipolar or I had bipolar tendencies. Mm. And there was nothing really wrong with me. So, of course, if I was told this, I thought if a psychiatrist is going to help me breathe again, I'll, I'm prepared to go. And I went to a psychiatrist who prescribed me a list of medications. It was probably about 10 or 12 line items. Mm. I went to a second one who said, no, it's definitely not psychosomatic. You're perfectly sane. And even my doctors at some point believed that I was psychosomatic. Mm. So... I mean, I believed them. If that was what was going to make me heal, I was prepared to do anything. Oh, that's so hard <laughs> to be terrible. told that. Gee whiz. And still to believe in yourself that you could actually recover. Yes. As you say, you were prepared to do anything just to recover. Yeah, I didn't give up. And when you were on the ventilator the first time, just tell me about that experience. So the ventilator experience is is quite traumatic because you obviously can't talk and express your feelings. The only experience I'd ever had with a ventilator or even really known of, of a ventilator is when a person is really old and often they put onto a ventilator and a few months later, yeah, they do die because it's the last effort. Resort. It mm. is your last resort. And I watched my grandpa as a tiny little girl on a ventilator. So... My thoughts was, when I woke up, was that, am I dying because I'm on a ventilator? Is this the situation? I didn't have very much time to actually think about that because people quickly told me that it's part of the recovery and it's part of the healing. So I didn't really think too much about death at that point, and I didn't think I was going to die. But it's very hard not to be able to express your feelings and very hard not to to feel this thing blocking your breathing. So what did you do to actually calm yourself then? Because that feeling of, of not being able to breathe must be terrifying. So when you're on the ventilator, they put you on, I think they sedate you quite a bit, so you don't feel a lot of feelings, and they take you off the sedatives quite slowly so that you have enough time to actually process it. You're going to be okay. These are the feelings you're going to have. So you... I suppose I was quite logical and reasonable, so it didn't freak me out too much. It was quite painful, and that freaked me out quite a bit because when you struggle with pain, you you struggle to breathe as well, even more, so your heart rate starts mm -hmm. going crazy and you hear machines. So it's really up to that nurse that's with you to actually keep you calm. And I was blessed to have someone that 
I still see her today, like if I go and visit someone in an ICU, and I often see her and she just cries because I think if it weren't for her that first time, I wouldn't have made it. So she stood by your side? Stood by my side, made me think positive thoughts, um, made me think about my family, let me know that the ventilator experience is going to be over, but I have to go through the motions. Hmm. And you were at the Mill Park, weren't you? So the second time I was ventilated, or the second time I was admitted, so the first experience was the Marcinia, which was my first experience with a ventilator. Um, Where was that? That was Lingsfield. Okay. Post the not breathing and needing to be admitted into hospital with the blisters in my mouth and all that, that was at, I got admitted into the Mill Park. And is that where you were in ICU? And that's when I was in ICU for five months. Five months? Yeah. Good heavens. So just to take us through those five months for a moment. So it's... This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. We cut uh, Talia off uh, in mid-sentence there. Um, I'm with Talia Isaac. She's a double lung transplant recipient and a beautiful, healthy woman sitting opposite me, Baruch Hashem. Now, you were, you were about to say it's... We were talking about um, when you were in the hospital for that length of time and you were actually in five... For five months you were in. And in that time... Did you, I'm sure you must have longed to get home. So, as I was saying, mm. it's quite, um, it's a scary time because you don't have any indication of how long you're going to be there. So you're literally waiting for uh, an organ. And it's quite scary knowing that you, you don't know what's next. So you kind of live for the day and you live for the next day. And that's how I did it. I... My biggest dream for every day was to be able to go for a walk, was my three hours a day I got to spend with my family, and I waited for them, and if they were one minute late, I was very upset. Um, Did you panic about them? Did you worry about them if they were one minute late? I didn't panic about them. I just got scared that I wasn't going to get my full hour with them. I was very needy of them. Gosh, look how you longed for that hour. I longed for that hour and that extra five minutes and... When they couldn't arrive on time, I did start panicking a little bit, but it wasn't because I didn't think they'd come. It was just that loneliness. I've mm. counted down my time. It's I needed to see them. And I was very positive, which was quite amazing. I think I did look forward to the next day. My evenings were very scary and horrible um, and lonely, but I woke up positive, ready to tackle the next day, ready for people to come say hello to me, ready for the nurses to say we're going for a walk today. And those were things that kept me going. I was excited for the next day. I was excited if I didn't feel sick and I could eat food. Hmm. Amazing. And I was excited to my sister for my sister to bring me breakfast. And I wouldn't eat with the nurses because I wanted to eat with her. And these things made me excited. And I, I knew I was going to be okay. I just had to be patient. Amazing. So I'm talking to Talia Isaacs. If you'd like to WhatsApp us, please do so on 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519. Talia, tell me about those lonely hours. How did you talk to yourself and, and get through those lonely hours? They can be so long. 
You spend a lot of time with God, I suppose. Um, Were you, would you say, a religious person before? Did you have a belief system before? I believe in God. Um, traditional. I'm not by any means religious. Um, I used to read through my Tehillim book a lot. I used Tehillim to Tehillim Psalm, your yeah, book of Psalms. Mm. I used to read through that a lot. Um, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about what's to come. I wouldn't say I planned much further, but I had a niece coming. I had a nephew coming. I have a big family, and there's lots of celebrations, and I had a need to see my nieces and nephews who weren't allowed in the hospital. So I used to think about them a lot, and I used to think about the stories I made my family tell me. So they would come and visit, and they'd have to tell me their full days. And there was nothing very exciting, but... I but looked to forward you it to was that. exciting. Those, I looked forward to my next visit and my physio sessions and my bio sessions and my doctor's visits. And that's what I looked forward to because that's what gave me hope each day. It was a physical, mental, and a very spiritual battle that it I had. It sounds like it. And it sounds as though you almost divided your day up into segments. That's exactly what I did. I had visiting hours at 11 visiting hours at 3 and visiting hours at 7.30. And I made sure that I worked towards those times and I made sure that by the time the 7.30 person left, who was normally my mom or my husband, they used to alternate, then I, w I needed to go to sleep almost as they left so that I didn't have too much time to think. Hmm. That's fantastic. That's actually such determination, quite honestly. But just looking at you and hearing your story, I think your determination to live, your will to live is incredibly strong. You know, Viktor Frankl says if you have a why to live, you can manage anyhow. Do you think that's true? It's totally true. Um, I lived for myself firstly. I lived for my family. I need my family. I believe they need me. And they were my reason for living. I Did you feel you would cause them incredible heartache if you were not here? What was What did you want for them? The biggest problem I had during that whole time was guilt. Guilt that my family were suffering and they were suffering. Mm. Um, I could live in my own experience. I think when you're going through something, you somehow find that super strength that I was speaking about. But I don't think they can. I've been on the outsides of people suffering and you don't, you don't cope very well when you are the support system. Nothing feels right. And I knew they were experiencing that. And especially as a parent, you so want to take away the pain from your child and take it on to yourself. I had a lot of guilt for my mom. And um, she's been through a lot of, she's also been through trying times. I mean, she's lost two children in her life. Mm. And I, did, I was not going to be the third. Gosh, that's terrible. Yeah, that mm. was not going to happen. And she fought for me. Um, yeah, it's very scary, I'm sure, as a parent. I'm not a parent, but I can only imagine. And if she had gone through those experiences, how terrifying. Scary stuff. Just tell me about your husband. How long had you been married for when this happened? So my husband and I had only been married for one year when I got sick. So we've almost been married for as long as I was sick. Gosh. So two years m marriage in health and two years in sickness. Mm. So and has he stood by your side? I have been very blessed with my husband. I'm very lucky. He took a lot of strain, I'm sure, during my 
illness. Uh, it was not what he had signed up for. It's not what any of us sign up for. And it's very hard for a young person to see a young woman go through what I've, what I went through. And, and the vows in sickness and in health, uh, you don't really take seriously, do you? You do not take that seriously mm. enough. Um, and I don't think what I went through, I don't think people go through in 20 years of marriage. Mm. And I think he went through a very brave, he was very brave to go through what he went through. But again, it's not without support. I think we've both come from a very strong support system. And I think everyone stood by the both of us as best as they could. They were People were amazing to us individually mm. as well as together. And tell me about what you were doing before this happened. What were you doing work-wise? Did you have a? Did you had? Had you been at varsity at college? What did you do? So, I was, I've always been a career person. So I finished varsity. I went to work. I had a great job. I loved to work. My goal was to head up the corporate ladder and be a great success in what I did. I loved what I did. I worked hard. And I loved to work hard. And what were you doing? Marketing. Okay. I was at a corporate at the time. Was that your degree, a marketing degree? Yeah, I did a marketing degree. Then I landed up at a, it was a small company which brought up a big company. And I was happy and happy with what I was doing. I did work crazy hours, but it didn't bother me so much. And life was good. Life was great. I didn't have any complaints. And... I think post-transplant, you start realizing what's more important. And I realized that I needed extra time with my family because when you're working, you don't realize that you don't spend quality time with people. Everything becomes part of that routine. And when I did come home from hospital and I had lost my job at the time, um, they were very kind to me for a long time, but I did eventually lose my job. Um, and I think I decided I'm not going to work for someone who's going to take time away from me and from what I need to do and want to do. So there was a big mind shift post-transplant. Mm, that's that's actually, it sounds like it because from from being driven almost, you stepped back and you looked at what was important to you. Yes, and the drive doesn't change. I'm still driven. I'm still motivated. I mean, I started doing my own business and I st- do, I still do marketing because I love it, so I still do marketing on the side. So I'm basically doing everything I love doing, except when you have your own hours, you have more time for, for yourself. Mm-hmm. We tell you, we will go back to that in a minute. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. My guest today is Talia Isaacs, who had a double lung transplant a year ago, and it's wonderful to have her here. And you are going to be listening to a YouTube now by Dr. Alex Patakos called The Meaning of Positive Thinking. And then I'm going to ask Talia what she actually thinks about his words. Today on People Jam Experts, we have great advice from Dr. Alex Patakos. In your perspective, there's meaning in every moment, even the tremendous setbacks or suffering one might have. There's an element of wisdom to be gleaned from that moment. One exercise, for example, that I use, and I've actually recommended it uh, on People Jam, uh, is uh, when you do face a situation, particularly one that is a, a case of suffering or something you didn't expect that's negative, is make a list of 10 positive things that are correlated or result from that particular uh, situation. 
And by forcing yourself to write down the positive and looking at that negative through, you know, somewhat rose-colored glasses, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about this, but I think it helps you unstuck, become unstuck, because even though we may be prisoners of our own thoughts, we also have the ability to unlock that inner mental prison cell. I think in your book you even mentioned uh, there's an incident where a woman has a car accident with a school bus, and you're you were at the scene. I was at the scene. Tell me what. Tell me about that. Tell me how you guided that person to find some positives in what was clearly a disaster. Well, it's a, it was a very interesting case. I was a full-time uh, university professor at the time. I was driving down towards campus, and there was a school bus van coming up the street the other way. The school bus van, for no apparent reason, crashed into a parked car. I stopped, got out of my car to go help the uh, the driver uh, and a young lady. I ended up pulling her out of the back of the van because it was smoking in the front. Mm. And I kind of dragged her, half dragged her, carried her to a neighbor's house. Uh, while we're, I'm carrying her, she started to scream, Oh, my God, what am I going to do? I just got this job. My parents are going to kill me. And I didn't know what to do, so I stared her in the face and I said, let's list 10 positive things from this ac- accident. And, you know, the first thing we did was there are no kids in the van. Had picked anybody up. There was nobody in the parked car. Somebody was there in a moment of need. So when the somebody had called 911, when the ambulance finally arrived, they basically said that that particular exercise helped this particular victim not go into shock. So if for no other reason, in in a situation as as drastic as a car accident, a bus accident, uh, being having a positive attitude can help influence your 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 health, your physical health. And so in some respects, then you can kind of attach a meaning. You can decide what meaning you want to attach to a set of circumstances. I guess that's a pretty extreme example. But probably for our audience here on People Jam, there's lots of occasions every day where they can decide whether they want to attach a positive meaning to something or find the very obvious and evident negative meanings that come our way, whether we look for them or not. Of course, you got a very good illustrative anecdote for the book, Prisoners of Our Thoughts. Absolutely. Very well done. Some food for thought and a positive exercise for just about everyone who's watching this on People Jam. Please keep watching People Gen Experts for more with Dr. Alex Patakos. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Talia Isaacs. And that was Dr. Alex Patakos talking about the meaning of positive thinking and about doing an exercise. What did that mean to you? Talia, for, for anyone who's just tuning in, Talia is a double lung transplant um, recipient and uh, is sitting opposite me and is beautiful and, thank God, Baruch Hashem, healthy. Tell me about what you thought about that. Did it have any meaning for you? Um, straight away, I remember um, I used to, I had a notebook when I was lying in bed in hospital. And every single day I used to write five gratitudes. And mm. then I used to write five things that I'm positive about. And um, that's exactly what it is. And five things that I'm looking forward to for the day. And it's very much the same thing. You have to look for meaning in your circumstances. You can't always change your circumstances, but you have to find a way to deal with and cope with your circumstances if you have a will to move forward. If you don't, I could have very easily lay back and died mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. much as bluntly as that. I think you always have to find meaning and positivity in things. Did you? Did anyone tell you to do that, to write down things? Yes, I think it was my aunt. It was my aunt who told me to write down things that are positive and things that I'm grateful for. And recently I actually read through some of the things that I was grateful for. I found one of my notebooks. And just one of the things was I remember I wrote something about that I'm so grateful for my sister Fally. 
and I mean, I'm grateful for them, obviously, but to have to, that's how, that's all I could think of on that day for my gratitude. And it was good enough. It kept me going. Mm, wonderful. So, I mean, that's wonderful words for people, actually, for all of us. I must admit that your unbelievable courage and your very strong will to live under these life-threatening uh, circumstances are a true testament to the power of the human spirit. Uh, which is, it's just fantastic. And your how to live really was, as you, your, your sister, I think, was pregnant at the time, I seem my to remember from your talk. Pregnant. My mm-hmm. sister was pregnant. My sister-in-law was pregnant. Um, I think we had a balmy coming up, my nephew's balmy. Um, my family, my family were my will to live. Mm-hmm. And that's all I cared about. I didn't care about anything else. Just wanted to be there for them. Did humor come into your life at all? Do were you able to laugh? We laughed a lot. What at what sort of things did you laugh? I can't really remember. It wasn't we didn't I don't remember the details, but we had fun. It was never you never come into my room and were morbid and depressed and hoping that I'd survive. We knew the situation I was in. I was in quite a rough situation. We're waiting for a donor and we laughed about Silly things. We're laughing about, um, like, what's going to happen when the donor comes. We laughed about, I don't even remember. It was just, we, we never, were never morbid. We're never depressed. We celebrated every day together. And tell me about the people that you actually chose to have around you. So I wasn't, I was in isolation in ICU, so I was really only allowed a few visitors and that, was basically my immediate family um, and my in-laws. That's all that was allowed to visit me. That's all that did visit me. And it was perfect for me because when you really only have three hours, you need to spend it with the people that you need. So you needed positive people around you. All the time. Did negative people ever enter your life or try and come in at that time? There were negative people that entered, but... Um, yeah, at, I think they were pushed away as quickly as they came or the second they did hurt me in any way or influence my behavior in any way or distress me exactly. Um, family got involved. So my, as I said, my family, my husband, my in-laws, that's all that were allowed around me. So all those distressing people were shunned from my space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very um, important for all of us to actually realize that when we do go into a hospital situation, whether the person's desperately ill and fighting for their lives, it's still a scary situation being in a hospital. So you definitely do need people who can uplift you, not people who are going to pull you down or say you're going to die and get ready for it. Or, I mean, how dare anyone ever say something like that? So what's also quite interesting is the doctors also know how to deal with it. They don't necessarily always give you a straight answer, but they never, ever negative. And everyone can learn from that as well because the doctors know the truth, yet they never fully share the truth with you. In Yes, I think if you're dying, it's a different situation. But when they don't know, they also put their, put your life in God's hands. You know, they just, God works through them, and a lot of them tell you that. And is that comforting to hear? I think so. It is. Of course, anything positive is comforting. Mm, mm. Negativity is 
awful. It does affect you physically if people are negative. It makes you feel ill. Suddenly you, suddenly you feel so sick that day, but you don't know why. Negativity impacts your physical body. It very definitely does. There's an aura around us, very definitely. And if somebody of negativity manages to penetrate that, it definitely does go into our soul. Definitely. And it does sap us of our strength. And I think that's something we can all learn from, to keep away from toxic people and not to become a toxic person ourselves. Definitely. So it's quite uh, amazing, actually. But if you would like to SMS us, you can on 34519-061-895-1019 is our WhatsApp number. I'm talking to Talia Isaacs, double uh, lung transplant recipient. And um, I must admit, I often get messages after the show to say we didn't want to send a message during the show because we were too busy listening. Um, just tell me, going back to how you have changed, has religion entered your life more or well, what What have you changed in your life apart from your work, obviously? Tell me about your attitude now. So to touch on religion, I've always been quite a spiritual person. Okay, well, I see. Just hang on. Talia, we've got a, a message coming through. Talia, you are an inspiring. You are so inspiring. I so admire your resilience, your spirit, and your amazing determination and your honesty. Thank you so much, Sue and Talia, from fans in Australia. Thank you so much, fans. <laughs> it's wonderful to hear from you. Um, Talia, go back to being a spiritual person. So I've always been a spiritual person and I think spirituality does play a big role in it because it, it's something that comes from within. So what is spiritual for you? Do, I would, you, do you see a, an afterlife? Do you see this life? How do you view it? I do see an afterlife. I do believe there's more to life than what's just here. And I do believe everything here is a lesson for what's to come. And I also believe we... We only have partial control of what happens here. Um, yes, we're made up of mind, body, and your soul. And I think. And psyche. Yeah. Sure. And your, yeah. So I think that your, you, the physical, the mental, and your spiritual being makes up who you are today. And yes, some of, some of those things are not always in control. For example, if you're old and you, you, your body starts packing up. It doesn't mean your mind's not there. It doesn't mean your spirituality is not there. Maybe it just means it's your time because your body physically can't handle anymore. I knew that I was going to be strong. I just needed the lungs. Everything else about me was perfectly healthy. Hmm. Can we discuss the lungs for a moment? How did they prepare you to actually accept, first of all, uh, a donor lungs? So it's that was one of the the most mind-blowing parts of the whole experience. When I found out I needed a lung transplant, someone came to speak to me, and they actually put a lot of fear into me around... Who, who was the someone? Uh, someone who was trying to prepare you? Yeah. Oh. The, the, that, there's a whole team that actually prepares you for a lung transplant, and there's a lot of people involved. So it's the doctors, there's psychologists, there's coordinators, there's a whole lot... There's a whole team and a whole program that you go through. And at first it was quite scary because 
in my mind, I had some form of bad asthma. <laughs> so it was quite an extreme going from maybe I have asthma to I need a lung transplant. Mm. It's like people that say, well, I've got a little bump on my shoulder, must be cancer. Like for me, it was literally the same concept that suddenly I had went from there's nothing serious to I actually really need a lung transplant. Mm. Although I did know it was quite serious because we had tried everything else. Um, so this person who first came in, why did she frighten you? I think it was frightening because I needed to, I couldn't quite accept the truth at that point. Mm. So it's frightening to know that I was going to get someone else's organs in my body. So the logic of it was just quite overwhelming. Um, what did you do with that thought? Um I had to put it aside to survive. So I basically weighed it up and I basically realized that if I want to survive, I need these lungs. But it was for about three to, no, it was more. Probably for the first three months, as I was taking this whole thing in, they give you a booklet, you read about it, different people come and speak to you about it and you ask questions. And I realized that it's not so bad. I realized that with that, I can lead a completely normal, healthy life. That doesn't mean I wasn't scary because I saw a lot of people dying around me. I wasn't in ICU. Mm. And a for lot five of people, months. For five months. Gosh. So what I saw was, was no joke. I saw healthy people that were dead the next day or what I thought were healthy people. Um, I heard of people that were dying. I, there was some horrible cases of, um, lung transplants not going so well at the same time. Everything has its ups and downs and every single up you're going to get people that survive and don't. So that was very scary. It took me until about a month before to truly accept that I needed the lungs. And about a week before I got the lungs, I was praying for those lungs. Gosh. And then I got them. So you need to be really ready and willing to accept this gift because you have to look after it and you have to appreciate it. And as you say, it is a gift. It's a gift of life and it's it's a, a gift from your donor. Yeah, I think that's someone you can never thank enough. You can never appreciate enough. I was asked to write a letter to my donor family afterwards. And it took me about three months to write this letter because how do you write a letter to someone that you're never going to meet and this is your only interaction you're ever going to have with them? How do you put... All your gratitude into a letter. It almost feels trivial, insignificant. So it was a very difficult letter to write, and I'll forever be grateful to my donor. I mean, they're part of me forever. And you never, you never knew who they were. It's in this country, you're not allowed to, are you? You never get told. You don't know anything about your donor. And um, preparing for it, was there any time when you actually were told you were going to have a lung transplant and then it fell through or the lungs were not healthy or whatever? I was never directly told about it, but I was at times told there were, afterwards I was told there were two potential lungs for me. So you were never prepared and then I was never prepared, but it does happen and... From what I've heard, it's the most traumatic experience because you, you're ready. You're going into theater and then you get sent back to your room. So in a way, I was lucky that I didn't have that. And then coming round after the operation. So they prepared you for the operation and did they prepare you even going into theater? Did they pre- prepare you emotionally? So I don't remember much. I remember getting the phone call to say my lungs are here and I remember phoning my family and telling them. I remember panicking because I couldn't get hold of my husband, um, which eventually we got hold of, 
we got hold of him eventually. It took a while. So that was quite scary. And um, from that, I don't remember much. I remember, um, my sister told me afterwards that I apparently phoned my entire family across the world. So people overseas, people here, I've spoke to everyone. Um, I spoke to, I remember, I mean, my, what's it, my anesthetist told my aunt that um, I told him before that I was going to have a panic attack and he had to keep me calm. But everything else I don't remember. And I don't remember anything from when I came to after the op. I actually remember when I did eventually wake up, which could have I could have been more awake for a few more days before that, but I remember feeling no tubes on me, and that was amazing. So no ventilin, no nothing? Nothing. Gosh. I had nothing on me. I think I was off the ventilator the same day. I think I, um, I may have been on a bit of oxygen for a day or two. I think after day two they took the oxygen off, but I really only remember when I couldn't feel anything on me anymore. And when you took your first breath, what did that feel like? It's just too incredible. It's so amazing to be. It's almost normal because it's normal to breathe. It's a normal thing. Mm. So it was amazing to be normal. Mm, that's actually amazing. You know, Rumi, the Sufi uh, mystic, says, The morning wind spreads its fresh smell. We must get up and take it in. That wind that lets us live, breathe before it's gone. Mm-hmm. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. And you took your first breath. Were your family by your side right throughout? I had the best support system. The worst part of my experience was you're, you're not allowed, your family are not allowed near you for about a week. Oh, you're in isolation. You're in isolation. You're allowed a nurse, just one, and obviously your doctors come in. They literally boil your clothes. So it gets, comes out of a special oven. Um, a even, microwave. Type yeah, thing. I don't know what happens, but it's even like hot when it comes out. So you really are secluded from everything. And you also go through a psychosis. This is a psychosis, so I was going crazy this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. My guest today is Talia Isaacs, double lung transplant recipient. And we are talking about her experience once she got her lungs and she was in isolation. First of all, I do believe that when you're in isolation like that, I am a medical person myself, you... um, First of all, the people that you see are covered with a mask, so you can't really see them properly. And that in itself is is alienating. So you were saying that you felt very isolated there. So you're basically trapped with one nurse. I think you what keeps you sane is that I could breathe. Mm. So I knew I was I knew the worst was over. I knew that I had survived this transplant. I knew that there were no Serious hiccups because they would have, I would have known. So what was the psychotic episode that you were talking oh, yes. about? So they give you, so basically from the medication, it's a very normal thing. Every transplant person goes through it. You go through a psychotic episode where you hallucinate and you go through some crazy hallucinations. I went through plenty, some really funny, some Tell traumatic. Me a funny one? Um, hmm. What was the funniest? Oh, I I remember telling my family that I, my ex-boss 
was writing on my whiteboard in front of me that I had won an award, an huh. annual award. And the annual award that I'd won was that I took the most leave days for the year. <laughs> <laughs> so we laughed a hell of a lot at me. But there were other scary ones where I thought my family were being murdered. And I remember jumping up out of the bed and saying, well, if they're all going to die, I'm going to die with them. So oh, let me go. And the, I remember the nurses said, saying to me, no, you can't. And they actually strapped me down at some point to the point that when I got home, I had a bruise around as if someone had strangled my wrist. Mm. And obviously they had to hold me down mm. because I couldn't pull all. I still had other drips and things in me. So they and had to keep me put. like that. Mm. The funny thing is um, my sisters and my mom actually, eventually my mom and my husband were eventually allowed in, which was a huge help. And um, eventually my other sister and my sisters were eventually allowed in as well. And after that, I think a lot of my hallucinations were that they were there, but they weren't near me. So they were at a party together. I seem to have a lot of parties in this hallucinations. But we're at a party together, and they didn't come and talk to me. So I think although it was a way of showing that I was isolated, because they were there, they were behind the window, I could see them, but they couldn't come and hold me. Mm. And I needed that physical touch, I think. And the second they were allowed in, I think it was after about four days, and they could physically hold me again, my hallucinations hallucination started getting less and less, and they started being able, I started to differentiate when I was hallucinating and not. Hmm, how amazing. You can SMS us on 34519, or you can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019. Talia, tell me about the human touch. What did it mean to you? I mean, there you were in isolation. The only human touch that you had were probably the doctors and your nurse. What What did you long for about a human touch? So I think the scariest thing about being in hospital is you basically surrender yourself to the medical team. They are in charge of your body, and you do what they say. If they tell you to... Put your arms still, even though it's the most painful experience to draw certain bloods. You do what they say. So you're basically out of control of your own body. But you can never be out of control of your own mind. So I think your your mind takes you to long for that touch, and that's why you need it. Mm. And I, I think every visitor that came to visit me, we just held hands. And all I wanted to do was hold hands with people. And was I it still the sharing do. of energy? I assume so. Mm. I don't know what it is. I guess physical is what we know as love and a hug. You're always told to hug and kiss your children mm. and it doesn't, obviously doesn't go away. I think everyone needs to be loved. And I think when you, when it's very hard to show it in other ways, you can tell someone how much you love them many times, but I think in that situation you actually need positive touch and warmth, and you, you're not in control of yourself. So that little handhold makes a huge difference. And you still to this day like to hold hands. I hold hands with everyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's so beautiful. That human touch, I do believe, is, is so much part of the healing process, quite honestly. Having that connection with people, it does create connection. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Tehillim groups, psalm groups, prayer groups. Um, were you ever put on to any of those sort of groups, prayer groups or anything? As far as I know, I was on plenty. All across different the world. religions and 
every religion across the world. Um, people used to visit me and say, can I add you to my program? I was like, with pleasure. <laughs> it was, I was on gospel groups and Muslim groups and every, everyone used to pray for me and I loved it. I was on every Jewish group. I remember quite a few in Israel. And people used to come and tell me about it because they used to tell my family about it. And I loved it. I knew that that was part of my healing. I knew that that can help. That's actually so important for all of us to to hear because we always get messages, you know, say put so-and-so on your prayer group and you don't know the person. You don't know what they're going through. And you wonder if it does help or not. But you're saying it definitely does. It definitely helps. And also, I know a lot of people post-transplant, used to, I used to see them, and they go, oh, are you tell you about Devorah. I'm like, yeah, uh, that, that's, I assume you, I assumed you prayed for me. Uh, Thanks. Uh, <laughs> now, when you actually got out of isolation, did you go back into ICU, or where did you go? So, I stayed in ICU for about three weeks, and then not in us. no, the whole time you are in isolation. They've got very strict rules. For the first month, you have to, even when you're out of hospital, actually it's three months, you still wear your mask just to prevent germs. After about three weeks, I went to a general ward, and the general ward is still in isolation, but you in a normal section of the hospital. It's more of a stepping stone to let you out of hospital altogether. I couldn't walk. Um, they need to make sure that you're capable of doing everything on your own again. They need to make sure your medicine's stable. And they need to make sure that nothing, they x-ray you, they take bloods. they just got to stabilize you until you go home. What was it like getting out of ICU where there's lights flashing all the time and um, noises, you know, going? What, what from all the machines attached to everybody? What did that feel like? I almost felt like I was in my own bedroom. Huh, is that so? <laughs> it felt like I was given my own space and privacy. I mean, to go have a shower on my own was just amazing. To have a bathroom dedicated to me. I mean, they were very good to me in ICU. They used to, I did have my own bathroom, my own space, but you watch 24-7. To not have mm-hmm. the doctor come to me. At the first in the morning, I wasn't important, I wasn't as important anymore, which meant that I was fine, uh-huh. which was the best feeling. <laughs> I had a little garden. I could go walk around whenever I want. Um, I still, what was amazing is they sent me to a general ward with an ICU specialist. So nurse. So I knew the nurses. So they didn't just throw me into the deep end. They basically mm. took me. It was almost like a stepping stone. To, to the next level, to freedom, mm. but I still had my nurses who knew my, what my wants, my needs, my strengths and weaknesses at the time. And you felt safe with them. And it gave me a lot of security, mm. yes. Tell me about not being able to walk. Did that happen after the lung transplant or, or before? It happened after and I wasn't expecting it. So my muscles had completely withered away that when I sat up and stood on my two feet, I couldn't actually hold myself. I was being carried. The physio literally carried me and I didn't know how I was ever going to walk again. But everyone just reassured me that uh, this is normal and it comes back and I couldn't believe it. Eventually, I was able to take steps with in her hands, or before that, I could just stand still on my feet, holding hands. And when I was able to walk again, I couldn't lift my heels off the ground. So I couldn't go onto my tippy toes. My mind wanted to, but my body wouldn't do it, mm. which is the most absurd feeling. 
It must be, gosh, and, and frightening because you didn't know what the future held with your legs. No, I knew I was going to walk again. It wasn't scary. It was more crazy. The worst was over. That's fantastic to hear. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. My guest today is Talia Isaacs, a double lung transplant recipient, and we've been talking about her experience and her incredible will to live, to tell you the truth. If you'd like to SMS us, please do so on 34519 or WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019. Talia, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I would like to ask you, did your your immunosuppressant drugs, how have those been for you? And have you had any episodes when you had to be readmitted to hospital? When I, about a week after I got home, I did have an acute rejection episode. This is something that does happen within your first year. Had they prepared you for that as much as, as a, they could? As much as they can, I guess. It's something that can happen. It doesn't necessarily happen. But unfortunately, I got it. It was very scary. You basically, I was, I went for my general weekly checkup. I had a fever of I don't know what. And by the end of the day, I was back in bed, back on oxygen. I had this external, what they, it's sort of like an external lung breathing for me. And this was probably more traumatic than anything because I had a taste of freedom. And here I was back at square one. Mm-hmm. I did heal within two weeks. I, I was on that ventilator thing for about three days and So you never rejected the lungs. So the lungs weren't rejected, it was just an acute experience and mm. it was terrible because even when I was getting better I was still on oxygen and that was a time where I didn't know if I was coming off it. Mm. That must have been very scary. So your mind must be incredibly strong to actually have survived what you have survived. What are your plans for your future? I think, um, I wouldn't say I'm picking up where I left off at all because everything's changed from a career perspective. Like I said, um, my aim is to grow my own business and do what I'm passionate about and do marketing and my one of a kind make stuff and be more creative and have more fun in the work sense. In terms of, um, other parts of life, I always had dreams to travel. So, me and my husband are fulfilling those dreams and we're traveling and we're doing, spending less time worrying about stuff and more time planning more stuff. So you're planning for the future all the time. All the time. Talia, it's been wonderful having you on this program. We're going to be ending now, but we're going to be ending with a, with a fantastic song. It's called, it's by Abram Freed called Keep Climbing. And that's what I wish for you. Just keep climbing. But what I would also like to just end with, we've had a lot of violence in the world lately and a lot of attacks. And I just wanted to give you this quote to end with. Someone asked me, what is your religion? I said, all the paths that lead to the light. That's what I wish you. Wonderful journey ahead of you and for everybody. Peace and safety. Thank you.